be seated. Put up your hymnals, take out your Bibles, if you would. Turn with me to Hebrews 3. We've been working our way for a couple months now through a verse-by-verse study of the book of Hebrews. This will last us uh, likely another year or more. Uh, And we'll be reading Hebrews 3, verses 7 through 19. But before I read the text, I want to point out a couple of things. First off, this passage is going to start with, therefore. And and so as good students of the word, you know that when something starts with therefore, you're supposed to ask, what's it there for? So you go back and you see in the previous verse a warning. So in verses 1 through 5, the author of Hebrews, we don't know who it is. We, We believe it was a pastor of a church that was wandering. And this may have been a sermon. It may have been a letter that he wrote to them. But he's exhorting them to remember the goodness and the mercies of Jesus Christ and, and not to wander. And so he, says, he begins with therefore, and he's explaining how it is that we're to do that, how we're to hold fast to the faith as he told us to do back in verse 6. So the, so the therefore is linking verse 6 to verse 7. Second, I want you to see the authority with which these words are spoken In verse 7, he begins, as the Holy Spirit says. You could write a book on those words right there about the inspiration of Scripture. All of Scripture is breathed out by the Holy Spirit of God. The reason he says this here, I think, draws particular attention to the authority of the Scriptures as the Word of God is because he is calling them to hear a warning, a stern warning coming from the Holy Spirit. And, and in a sense, he, he's, he's telling them, you need to listen up. You need to turn your hearing aids up right now because the Holy Spirit has something to say to you and you need to be very attentive to it. And then third, I just want you to see the repetition. In verse 7, it's going to say, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. You come to verse 15, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. When we get to chapter 4, we're going to see that same uh, thing again. It's a citation from Psalm 95. Why the repetition? Does he just forget that he said it? No, he wants to drill it home. You need to hear this word. There is nobody in that congregation, and there's nobody in this congregation that does not need to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say. Now, we need the Holy Spirit's help for that, and so let's go to him in prayer before I read the text. Holy Spirit, we do need you to come and make your word clear to us, but not just that. We need you to subdue our our own sinful tendency to, to at times be complacent, to be comfortable in our faith, at times to, to be rebellious in our own hearts against your word. We would never call it rebellion, but that's, that's exactly what it is when we hear you speak to us and do not follow what you have said. And so, Holy Spirit, would you give us the grace to listen attentively with our ears, but to hear with our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 3, starting at verse 7. This is the word of God. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. 
Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who are those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were able, uh, unable to enter because of disbelief. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I, uh, I think most of us probably realize that there are certain signs that someone may be having a heart attack. Um, things like chest pain and lightheadedness and, and pain or discomfort in the neck or back or, or shoulders, uh, shortness of breath. We see those things with acute intensity and we, we can't ignore them. But oftentimes, when we see those signs, it's too late. What maybe few of us realize is, is that there are early warning signs of heart problems, of heart disease, early warning signs that often uh, precede a heart attack. Things like becoming easily exhausted and sweating or swelling in the feet and ankles or irregular heartbeat. And if we ignore those things, those signs we do so to our own detriment. In our passage today, the Hebrew church is facing a pretty tremendous heart problem. And there's all sorts of signs that things aren't good. Some of them are thinking of turning away. These are people who were probably raised in the temple or raised in the synagogue. We don't know exactly where they were geographically, but they have followed Christ. But, you know, they used to have that nice temple facility. Now they're meeting, like, in living rooms and uh, graveyards and places like that. And they're thinking, you know, we had it pretty good then. A and they used to be the majority religion of the area. But now they're viewed as, as an outcast sect. And they can see persecution on the horizon. And some of them are starting to say... Is this what you led us out for, God? Is this what you brought us out for? Is this what Jesus called us to so we would come out here and die? That, that's really about what they're saying. And some of them are thinking about going back to the temple, going back to Old Testament Judaism. And what this author of, of Hebrews is doing for his beloved but grumbling flock is he's connecting them, these first century believers, with their ancestors 1,400 years before who had the exact same problem. God had led them out of Egypt, and what did they do? They grumbled, and they started to think about how good they had it back there. 
and he warns them. You know, they too grumbled. They too despised God's grace. And do you know what happened? They did not enter into God's rest. They didn't enter into the land of promise. And this pastor, with much care, is saying, you know, you are not the first people to be discontent. You're not the first people to grumble and struggle with discontentment and even think about turning away. And so rather than following our feelings, let's look at their example, learn from their mistakes, so we don't do the same thing and face their terrible consequences of not entering the land. That's why he keeps going back into the Old Testament. Because he's saying there, you are in danger of being like them. This is not a new story. You're going to relive the same thing that they did 1,400 years before, and people since creation have done. As we look at this passage, we're going to see three things. I want you to see first, God's redeeming grace in the passage. Second, the people's rebellion. And then third, what our response ought to be. So God's grace, the people's rebellion, our response. Let's look first at this warning passage and you need to see that the context of it is incredibly gracious redemption from God. It's easy to read a passage like this and think God is harsh, but that is simply not the case. It's against the backdrop of God's incredible kindness that he warns them about the danger of their souls. And he says, I want you to look back at Israel 1,400 years before he wrote this letter. God delivered them from Egypt. You remember they were slaves in Egypt. It was a harsh slavery. They were being worked to death with no rest. They were required to do endless work, but not given the tools or the resources to do it. It was a miserable life. And they cried out, and God heard their cries, and he sent, he sent a deliverer, a redeemer, to rescue them. That was Moses. And God worked miracle upon miracle to deliver them. So you have the ten plagues, each of which were, were incredible. You have the crossing of the Red Sea. And, and Israel's seeing all of this. They're seeing everything God has done for them. And then they travel, and that grace continues to travel with them. You know, so there they are. They complain about the food. And God feeds them with his own hand, bread from heaven. And they complained how thirsty they are, so, so he gives them water from a rock. You know, this passage stands against an incredibly beautiful backdrop of how kind and loving and patient God is with us. He's a God who truly delights to bless his people. He loves to do that. And we need to let that sink in, because if we miss that point, we can think of this passage as just representing a harsh God. But these warnings exist because God is so incredibly kind. In Scripture, and here's the connection, here's why the author of Hebrews is bringing this up. Israel's bondage in Egypt became a paradigm for understanding the sinner's bondage to sin. So, so what Israel was in Egypt Sinners are in sin. We are slaves in need of our, a, a redeemer, a deliverer. But our bondage is far worse than, 
than the bondage of the Israelites in Egypt. The law places much greater demands upon us than Pharaoh ever could. And Christ is the greater Moses. He came to set his people free, not from Pharaoh, but from the, the penalty of our sins and the, the bondage of sin. You know, I would, I would urge you this afternoon to, to set aside time in your study of God's word and just study the comparisons, the parallels between the deliverance from Egypt with Moses and deliverance from sin through Christ. And just think of Jesus as the greater Passover lamb. Think of Jesus as the greater manna, the bread from heaven. Just look at John 6. It's a clear connection. Uh, think of Jesus as the water from the rock, the one who says that he is living water. Think of Jesus as the, the serpent lifted up in the wilderness. Uh, think of Jesus as the one tempted in the wilderness, just as Israel was. But the difference being that where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. Now, not only are there parallels in Jesus' redemptive work, but there also are parallels in the rest that Jesus offers. And we don't often speak of, of the rest that we have in Christ, but Hebrews loves that terminology, and we'll see it a lot. Think of it in terms of, of Egypt. Israel worked seven days a week with no rest. They didn't have the resources to do the work. It was a difficult life. It was oppressive and God says, I'm going to give you a plot of land, the land of Canaan, I, I'll promise it, to you as a place of rest. And rather than Pharaoh being their master who required bricks without straw, God would be their master and he would show kindness without contempt. And instead of working seven days a week tirelessly, he says, I'm even going to give you one day a week where you're not allowed to work. Just as a reminder of how I have liberated you. From, from Pharaoh's harsh hand. That picture of the rest that they would have in Canaan after years of hard labor ultimately points us to what Christ offers us, the one who would deliver us from bondage to the law, bondage to sin, and bring us into his eternal rest. You know, making bricks without straw is a picture of man's effort to keep God's law on our own. Try as we may, we simply cannot do it. If it were up to our obedience to earn that final rest, it would never happen. But what Christ did was he came and fulfilled the law for us so that we could have his rest. And that rest that he offers is an already and not yet concept. We rest today. That's why we have a day of rest. It reminds us that Christ has done everything needful for our salvation. We rest in him, and yet the final rest has not yet come. Uh, by the way, just as an aside, that's why in the New Testament, the Sabbath day, the day of rest, is the first day of the week. You, you can think of the Old Testament Sabbath idea, being on Saturday. You worked, you worked, you worked, and then you got rest. In the New Testament, it's you rest first, and then you work out of that rest. You work because of what God has given to you in Christ Jesus. That's this wonderfully gracious work of redemption by God. 
And for the Hebrew people, the deliverance from Egypt is a picture of what Christ would come to do. This is further building on what we saw last week, that Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus led a greater deliverance from a greater oppressor. But we need to remember the rest of the story. Moses led the people out of Egypt. They saw miracle upon miracle. God showed them incredible patience. They had these great promises. And what did they do? Verse 9, they put God to the test. They didn't believe his goodness. They didn't obey his word. Despite all the goodness that they had seen, they didn't trust God. They were full of unbelief. And so while they're in the wilderness, Moses sends ahead those 12 spies not to determine whether they could take the land, but just to determine how to take the land and and to rejoice in how great the land was going to be. But that wasn't what happened. The 10 spies, 10 of the 12, return with a negative report. Yeah, the land is good, but the people are giants. There's no way that we can take them. We're like grasshoppers in their sight, and if we try to invade the land, we're going to be grasshopper toast. There were only two dissenters, Joshua and Caleb. What do they say? Ah, let's go take it. They're toast to us. We can take them. It's no problem. We have God on our side. What do the people say? Thanks, but no thanks. Looks like you just brought us out here to kill us, didn't you? Yep, we, we, we're going to walk by sight. We're not going to trust God's word. They didn't trust God's promise to give them the land. And what they didn't realize that as, is that as they're here putting God to the test, God was also putting them to the test. Numbers 14, just a, a few verses later than our Old Testament reading, starting at verse 26, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, how long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I've heard their grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore I would make you dwell, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. That's what happened. It's it's history. It's true history. But I want you to see what was happening in a spiritual sense. God showed incredible kindness. You know, the scriptures tell us of the kindness of God, that we have a God who delights to bless his people, to free his people, and that he is the only true source of joy in existence. But Satan always wants us to believe that God is unkind, that we can't trust his word, that he only wants to oppress us, and that he's some sort of cosmic killjoy. And so, the Israelites had this natural suspicion of God's good gifts. In a sense, they seem too good to be true, and the people say, thanks, but no thanks. And that was happening 1,400 years later with the Hebrew church, and it happens today, doesn't it? We hear of the gospel, and many will say, Thanks, but no thanks, God. We need to see that's not just an act of preference. Oh, we'll, we'll go serve a different God. We want to live in a different place. It was an act of rebellion. So that's the second thing, the rebellion of the people. God, we've seen all that you did to rescue us. We've heard the promises about the land of milk and honey, but you know what? 
we miss the fish and the leeks and the garlic that we had in Egypt. They've forgotten how terrible Egypt was, and they're starting to think, you know, at least we had steady meals there. Thanks for nothing, God. Rebellion is a heart issue. This passage tells us something very important about the human heart. It won't surprise you because you have one. The human heart has a natural tendency to be very hard and stubborn towards God. Look at verse 12. This is a heart checkup here. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. See, a hard heart is an unbelieving heart. This is a person who, who simply doesn't trust God or his word. Uh, one of you between Sunday school and the service was sharing with me a story about somebody who said, you know, if I had the opportunity, I'd rewrite the Bible to say such and such because it's kind of out of date. That's unbelief. That's, that's hard-heartedness. In the back of their minds, the Jewish people would have thought of Pharaoh because again and again we see that Pharaoh hardened his heart and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's what they would have thought of, but what they didn't realize is they were guilty of the exact same thing, hard-heartedness towards God. Isn't it interesting how good we can be at spotting the sins of others? We can be so eagle-eyed with the sins of others and absolutely blind to our own. That's a picture of hard-heartedness right there. A hard heart is also a disobedient heart. Look at verse 10. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. It doesn't mean they're ignorant of my ways. It means they don't want to keep my ways. God has given us the word. He's given them the commandments. They say, nah, we're good. We're going to go about it our own way. Uh, Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. That is the most anti-God song that you can think of. It's a disobedient heart. These people profess to be God's people, but they refuse to obey God's commands. Let's, let's just be very honest about this. Willful, unrepentant disobedience always undermines a Christian profession of faith. You may say you are a believer, but if the word of God is not shaping the course of your life, if you are not seeking to submit your will to God's will, then you should have no confidence that you have ever come to trust in Christ. And then we also see a, a hard heart is a heart that rejects God's grace. It, it doesn't just disbelieve. It doesn't just disobey. But it does so in the face of all that God has done. You know, think of what Israel saw. According to verse 9, they saw God's work for 40 years. They had every evidence that any person could have needed. Do you ever think about that? It'd just be nice if I had a little more evidence. They had all the evidence they could have needed. God leading them in a pillar of fire. The plagues. Bread from heaven. Yeah, but we need a little more evidence. They had seen God's kindness again and again and again and again. And it meant nothing to them. Well, why does an event that happened 1,400 years before this letter was even written and 2,000 years before us today, 3,400 years total, why does it matter for us today? 
because the paradigm of the hard-hearted Israelites who did not enter the promised land, who had had every covenant opportunity, but they rejected it, they stand as a warning for you and me today who have heard the gospel. Yet we ourselves could live with hard hearts. We ourselves could be in church every Sunday and yet persist in hard-heartedness. And just as the Israelites, so many of them did not enter the land, what Hebrews is saying is if you persist in hard-heartedness, it will prove that your profession of faith was insincere and you will fall away. That's what verse 11 says. You'll not enter God's rest. These are God's covenant people. We'd say today, these are church members. They have heard it all. Hundreds of thousands left Egypt, two entered in to the land. And he's warning his church because he loves them. Don't be among the many who profess to be God's people, but fall away because of hard-heartedness. We're going to see that in, in the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall away by the same sort of disobedience. He's speaking to them of the progressive hardening of heart that can happen today. Look at verse 12 again. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away. And I suspect some of them would have said, Us? We're God's special people. We're God's elect. We can trace our lineage back to Abraham. And, and we left everything to follow Jesus. The human heart is so deceitful, isn't it? It's deceitful above all else. Candidly, I can imagine there's really hard places to minister in the world. I actually think one of the hardest places in the world to minister is the south because you go up north you go out west and my experience has been people will be pretty honest about their unbelief but in the south it's so hard because every single person thinks they're a believer there may be no fruit there may be no evidence of faith there may be no obedience to the scriptures but every single person thinks they're the elect who, us? This can't be talking about us. You know, sometimes I think it would just be easier to do ministry among angry atheists than to do ministry in the South. That's what Moses' ministry looked like. Moses, we're the elect. We're God's special people. This pastor says to his flock, take care. You've seen God's redemption. You've heard about the people's rebellion. Now here's how you need to respond. You need to take care care. Here's how you're to respond to these warnings. That word take care in the Greek, it's the word blepete. It's the same word Jesus used back in Matthew 7, 3, when he says, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? The image here is inspecting something under a microscope as close up as you can. He's saying you need to put your own heart, your own life under the microscope. If we look at the marks of a hard heart once somebody's fallen away, it's like trying to save somebody by doing an autopsy. It's too late. So he says, look at your heart now. 
Just like there's those warning signs that you may be at risk for heart disease, this passage gives us several warning signs of of a progressively hardening heart. And I want to challenge you to take care, to hear these things, search the scriptures to see if these things are true, and then search your heart to see what the state of your heart is. The first warning sign we see here is drifting, drifting away. Look at the end of verse 12. He talks about being deceived, leading you to fall away from the living God. You know, it's the exact opposite of what we looked at last week in verse 1, where it says, consider Jesus. And, and that word consider is really fix the fullness of your attention on seeking and serving Jesus Christ. Drifting is just the opposite. It's not necessarily that we're opposed to Jesus, but it's that we're so preoccupied with so many other things that we simply drift away. You know, people never drift towards Christ. We drift away. And we see that today. I mentioned statistics of how the church in America has shrunk over the last two years of people falling away, falling away. People who once seemed highly committed to Christ are now so distracted and preoccupied with other things that their Christianity is indistinguishable from the rest of the world. It's a drifting. And then there's a second warning sign we see here, and that's distance. Look at verse 13. But exhort one another every day. I've told you last week, I'll tell you again and again, Hebrews assumes church participation. It assumes church life. It is not written to Christians living in solitude. It is written to Christians living together in the life of the church. That is the standard New Testament assumption, that if you are a believer, you are participating in the life of a local body. But exhort one another every day. This is a warning against distancing yourself from believers. As Christians, we ought to be integrally involved in one another's lives. But what's going to happen is when our hearts are hard, we are typically going to distance ourselves from other believers. And what happens is that that produces the most foolish thing we can do. Our lives are like coals in the fireplace. They burn hottest together. You pull one coal out, and the fire will die much more quickly. When you distance yourself from the life of the church, in most cases, what's going to happen is that your love for Christ will grow cold. And then when we choose to distance ourselves, that's a sign of a greater issue, and that is disinterest. When we, when we cease to exhort one another every day, it's, it's because those spiritual things just don't hold our attention. I talk to people all the time that say, I'm just too busy for time in the Word. I'm just too busy to get to church. No, you're not. You do what interests you. You have time for the things that matter to you. So do I. When our interest in Christ wanes, It'll manifest itself that we don't attend public worship. We don't spend time in the means of grace. Or we may be here physically, but our hearts are far away, like Jesus indicted the Jews in Matthew 15. He said, they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And what's happening, even by the time Hebrews was written, you get to chapter 10, and some people have already distanced themselves from the church. So 1025, it says, don't cease 
meeting together, as is the habit of some. Some have already drifted away. They've just lost interest. So they've drifted. It's created distance, and now they're completely disinterested. There's another warning sign here. This one's going to hit home with a lot of us. It's discontentment, a constant sense of discontentment. God says twice in Hebrews 3, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people in the wilderness provoked him. How did they provoke him? Grumbling. These grumbling people who grumble against me, God calls them. Are you a grumbler? It's not just a character flaw. It's a warning sign of a major heart issue. See, when we grumble about everything, when we complain about everything, it's our way, I think, pridefully of telling the world we think we know a better way to do things. What we're really doing is telling the world, my eyes are not fixed on Jesus at all. I am so concerned and consumed with other things that I pay very little attention to Jesus Christ. So constant grumbling is actually a self-indictment. For a Christian whose eyes are fixed on Christ, even the most hellish of circumstances can be a glimpse of heaven because Jesus is there. For someone with a discontent, grumbling heart, they can make even the most heavenly of circumstances a foretaste of hell. The issue is not circumstances. The issue is Christ. And if we are constantly discontent, It's not a situation issue. It's a heart issue. Another warning sign that we see here, deafness. Today, if you hear my voice, God says, I hope you all come expecting to hear the Holy Spirit's voice as the scriptures are read and expounded. But here's what spiritual deafness looks like. I'll just give you an example. You sit through the sermon, and then at lunch today, somebody says, What did the preacher preach on? You say, I don't know, heart disease or something. You don't give it another thought. The word of God falls on deaf ears. Another warning sign that we see here, delay. I was a youth director for uh, four years. And that was one of the things that was so hard in working with children with uh, teenagers is they always agreed with the truth of the gospel and they always said I'll do that later I'll live my life for Christ later of course none of us is guaranteed later we we see that here the passage uses the word today three times this author is communicating a sense of urgency because every day that we resist the word every day that we harden our heart a little bit more it will be all the harder to turn back so he's saying today inspect your heart why is that so urgent because the final sign of the spiritual heart disease is departure look at verse 19 He's concluding this conversation. He's been talking about the Hebrew people wandering in the wilderness, and he says a very sobering word there. He says, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. They had every spiritual benefit, but their hearts remained hard. They did not enter the land. We are living through what sometimes sociologists call the great exodus from church as numbers uh, 
what I quoted last week, uh, 20 years ago, one in every two Americans was in church on Sunday mornings. Just 20 years later, it's now one in every four. Millions of people are leaving churches. Now, there's a lot we could say about that. Are the, but the question we need to ask is, are they losing their salvation? These people who are walking away from church and walking away from Christ, denouncing Christ, denouncing the Bible, are they losing their salvation? Certainly not, because you cannot lose what you never had. But enough about them. What about you? Do you hear God's voice today? I'm not a prophet. I'm the son of a furniture salesman. But here's what I suspect. There are some in this room who are going to hear and they're going to take heed and they're going to make sure that their hearts are truly trusting in Christ. That their lives are not marked by disobedience, not marked by discontentment, that those early warning signs are not overly present in their lives. We'll all have struggles here and there, but that the general course of our life is not marked by those things. Some of you are going to do that. That's a very good sign. Others are going to say with Judas, surely not I, Lord. You, you may be talking about him, but you're not talking about me. I accepted Christ. I, 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 if the hope of your salvation is in something you have done, Jesus Christ is not your Savior. And there are some under the sound of my voice who are in great danger because they're not going to give this passage a second thought. The author here of Hebrews gives an image. He says, you know, if we were to travel to Palestine, if we were to be right outside of Israel 1,400 years ago, you know what we'd see? A bunch of tombstones. If you and I were to travel over to the Beaufort National Cemetery, it's really a, a sobering scene. There's tombstones in every direction, uh, about 27,000 tombstones, ranging from Civil War veterans to men um, lost in the war in Afghanistan. It's a sobering sight. But if we were to travel to Palestine 3,400 years ago, just outside of Israel, we'd see a graveyard 30 times larger. Whose tombstones are they? Look at verse 17. He's saying, if you need proof that God is not bluffing, look at those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness, in the desert. One commentator said they came out of the bondage of Egypt under faithful Moses, but they fell as corpses in the wilderness. They died in their sins and couldn't enter the land, and Moses could not help them. But as this passage says, if you are hearing God's voice today, what that means is it is not too late. It is not too late for you to take care. It is not too late for you to inspect your heart to see that Jesus reigns over every square inch of your heart. If you hear this word today, don't harden your heart, but instead run to Christ. Run to Christ. Do it today, and every time you see danger of, of drifting, danger uh, of hardness of heart, run to Christ. Seek forgiveness, confess, and repent, and renew your trust in him. So let me ask you, beloved, what are you going to do? We don't know what ultimately happened with this church, with the Hebrews. My guess is some listened and some left. 
Some repented, some turned away. But what about you? Will you ignore the warnings or will you run to Christ day after day confessing your sins and clinging to him only for forgiveness? Don't let Satan tell you you're too far gone or that Jesus has no interest in you. Consider Jesus who gladly and willingly receives sinners from the Egypt of our sin and bondage and draws us in with his gracious redemption. How do we apply this text? Just two points of application. First is, I just want you to consider the timelessness of, this wor- uh, of the word of God. The same thing that people were struggling with 3,400 years ago and 2,000 years ago, some of us have probably struggled with this morning. God's word is timeless. And that's an important point because this world craves relevance. You have churches called Relevant Church. But, but what they've done is instead of giving the relevance of the word, they've given five secrets for a happy life or ten steps to a better you. That's not what you need. What you need is the full counsel of God's word. That is the most relevant thing the church can offer. When scripture is preached, it's not just a word that the Holy Spirit spoke 3,400 years ago or 2,000 years ago. It is the Spirit speaking today to God's people, to you. So the word is timeless and relevant. Second, I think we just need to think for one moment before I close about the danger of being grumblers, of being complainers. For Israel, it was one of their core sins. It was certainly a character flaw, but it was also a core sin. God had done so much for them, and yet they complained. And you look at the Church of the Hebrews, God had done so much for them, and yet they complained. And what about us? If we were to mark our words, to make a mark every time we complain throughout the course of the day, I fear that it would be far more than any of us think. That would be a a healthy but difficult exercise for us to consider, honestly, how often we are prone to grumbling. It's such an insidious sin, but it's a sin we need to take seriously because when we grumble, whether it's our family or our community or the weather, or our church, or politicians. Ultimately, we are grumbling against God. We are declaring our distrust in God's sovereign rule in our lives. Paul exhorted the Philippian church to rejoice, to not grumble in hardship, so that, according to Philippians 2, they may be lights in the world. You never leave a a grumbler encouraged. You never leave a grumbler having seen the light of the glory of Christ. Do you want to shine light, the light of Christ in a dark world, in the midst of difficult circumstances? Then we need to be careful to rejoice and do not grumble. Let's pray together. Our God in heaven, we thank you that the word is indeed timeless. It is as relevant to us this very moment as it was when it was first written because the Holy Spirit is the one who wrote it through men. The Holy Spirit is the one who inspires it today 
God, we, we often think of things being inspired, but real inspiration is the work of the Holy Spirit as he works in our lives and softens our hearts so that we would turn away from such hard-heartedness and despise that hard-heartedness and turn to Christ again and again and again every day. Lord, teach us to be a content people, not because our circumstances are perfect, but because our God is perfect.